regime in Indochina, approximately 10,000 prisoners from Vietnam and Cambodia were deported to exile or penal sites within the wider French colonial world. From Gabon in Africa to French Guiana in South America, these prisoners were transported for sentences ranging from five years to a lifetime. Many of these prisoners had committed common law crimes. Um, but others were anti-colonial activists who occupied a great area between political crimes and those considered to be piracy or banditry. Many of them were exiled in different kinds of legal streams. Um, however, out of this group, there was one prisoner who was exiled for longer and further than any other prisoner from any other background. Indeed, given that he suffered his first exile at the age of 12 and was only at liberty for another 11 months of his life, he was the longest political prisoner in French colonial history. This talk will explore how such an extraordinary personal life story can provide a lens through which to examine larger colonial and exilic contexts, as well as perhaps think about some of the possibilities and constraints of historical biography. In September 1901, the artist Paul Gauguin stepped ashore on the Marquesian island of Hivao in colonial French Polynesia, over 900 miles northwest of the island of Tahiti and one of the most remote islands in the world. I'll show you on a map later where it is. In his desire to free himself from the perceived shackles of European life, Gauguin had come to one of the world's most isolated places in the hope of finding a painter's paradise and the freedom of inspiration he so fervently sought. It would be Gauguin's last journey and he died there two years later in 1903. Much to his surprise, when he arrived in the village of Atuona on the shore of Hivao, stood a young Vietnamese man speaking flawless French. A political prisoner from North Vietnam, he was there for the opposite reasons than Gauguin. Far from seeking freedom, the Marquesas were literally his prison. Originally exiled to Tahiti, his supposed rebelliousness earned him a further exile to the Marquesas, where he was supposed to act as a traveling nurse for a population at that time riddled with disease and alcoholism. This young man was Gauguin's friend and companion for the last two years of Gauguin's life. Born Nguyen Van Gum, his nickname, Kidong, was how he was known throughout French Polynesia. And here he is with his name, both in uh, Vietnamese and uh, his nickname there, Kidong, in its original Chinese characters. 
Um, this name, Kidon, was how he was known throughout French Polynesia, but nobody, and in fact, including his own descendants, knew what it meant. People believed it was either a sort of um, revolutionary pseudonym, like Ho Chi Minh had, or it was a court title from the imperial family of Vietnam. Both ideas are completely erroneous, and the first clue to this young man's extraordinary life actually lies in the name itself, with the first of these characters meaning something strange or wonderful, and the second meaning something small. In other words, extraordinary child, miraculous child, unbelievable child. That's the meaning of his name. Um, so he was born into a poor but literate family in North Vietnam. If I can show you here where he was born. He was born um, in the north, not too far from Thai Binh, right there, so sort of south of Hanoi. Um, and I just have to put this map up because it's always good and easy to have maps. But Indochina, which I'm talking about, was made up of five different areas. Uh, Cochin China, South Vietnam, Central Vietnam, known as Annam, and Tonkin, North Vietnam, which we're going to talk most about today because that's where Kudong was from and where his later life played out. Um, one thing just to mention is that for French colonial records, they always use the word Annamite to mean all Vietnamese, not just those from central Vietnam. So in some of the quotations that I'll use today, they use the term Annamite. So that's where he was born. Um, and he was born in 1875 into quite a poor family, not a royal family, as people later believed in French Polynesia. But from a very young age, he displayed amazing intellectual capabilities. He was known as a child protege from about the age of six, when he could memorize hundreds of Chinese characters just by looking at them. He became renowned for being able to read faces to determine fortunes, which is something that Vietnamese, the Vietnamese have taken from Chinese traditions, where you can tell someone's fortune by the structure of their face, similar to palm reading in other contexts. He was also reputedly able to disappear and reappear at Quinn, um, and also turn night into day if he so chose. Um, some people believe that he was the reincarnation of an earlier 15th century prophet and sage from Haiphong in North Vietnam. People said he'd been reborn in the body of Kidong. Um, that particular sage was known for his ability to tell fortunes using the Book of Changes, the Chinese classic, the Book of Changes. So probably Kidong was also able to tell fortunes that way as well. He became very famous for his poetry, which was in Vietnamese because it's a tonal language. Writing poetry has a very complicated rhyming scheme of the tones that are meant to beautifully parallel and reflect each other. So from a very early age, he was able to do um, precisely that. And let me, that's actually on the block print of him as a child. Up here, it's discussing his amazing abilities as a child. Um, I'll, I'll come back to these woodblock prints later because there's a series talking about his life. Here is one of the poems that he became famous for. Um, and I'm not going to read through all of it, but I just want to pick out some of the elements of it. Sky and earth, right? heaven and earth, two of the most important components. Um, 
humans with the feelings I have for the people I ask how to make the people suffer less. Out of such favorable geographical land, one famous person will be said to perform great deeds. In that sense, he's talking about himself. Um, but if we look at these sentences, in such favorable terrain drafts, tigers and dragons appear, the dragons are in an advantageous situation. What does this mean? Well, it's linking back to the ideas of um, the, the, the very geography of Vietnam itself, having areas in which an auspicious, a favorable geographical land is shown in the landscape itself. And here you can see very close to his birthplace in the mountains, people believed it was the outline of his dragon. In other words, some of the geomantic or feng shui powers that people believed were subterranean in Vietnam at the time, sort of coming together in an auspicious place, which, which was his birthplace. So all of these elements are coming together. The rumors about him, the very place he's born, the very geography close to his home village. All of this comes together so that people start to come and visit him. There starts to be a whole cottage industry around his house with guest houses set up, restaurants. People are coming from everywhere. And um, eventually he's given the name Extraordinary Child in a ceremony by the Vietnamese Emperor Tu Duc, who at the time also gives him some rice and some other um, uh, money for him to study. Right? So whatever we can say about the rumors that circulated about him, one thing is definitely true that he's a very intelligent young boy, very gifted in terms of his linguistic abilities and literary abilities. Um, so when he was 12, he came to some, before the French had written some colonial accounts or some archival uh, materials about him, some letters showing concern about the number of people that were flocking to, um, to hear him. And also a poem like this, which is really talking about the people suffering, right? And this is because of the French, uh, that at the time the French are starting to um, impose French colonial system upon them. Um, but it wasn't really until 1887 in the provincial town of Nanding that the French began to get very worried about this child prodigy. Um, on the third uh, anniversary of the French invasion of North Vietnam, there was an uprising in the town of Nanding. And at the head of that uprising was the youthful figure of Qigong, at that time only 12 years old. Colonial reports indicated that a group of about 100 people, well-dressed and holding a banner which read, the General of Heaven's Army, in other words, someone who's come to restore the balance, the correct balance between heaven and earth, the General of Heaven's Army, um, something that has been upset because of the French invasion of North Vietnam. So they carried Qigong and a palanquin to the citadel of Nanding. Armed with wooden spears and lances, each person wore up to four Buddhist figurines around their necks, believing the amulets bestowed invulnerability to French bullets. After the crowd was dispersed by firing on them, Qigong was arrested. So now the French have a problem. They can exile um, and imprison some of the other participants in this, which they did for 10 of the uh, people at the front of the procession. But what to do with a 12-year-old boy? It's difficult to put him into prison at that age. So they decide that he should be sent abroad and educated, whether he likes it or not. 
um, and that they should send him to a lycée in France, secondary school. Um, the hook behind this, of course, was to make him French and to make him someone who would be co-opted essentially by the French colonial regime. So in the end, they decide to exile him to Algeria, which at the time was considered to be a constitutional part of France. Here's the citadel. Um, in the report I read to you, these are the sorts of things people were carrying. And one of the things that they said when they were interrogated by the French was these are ceremonial weapons. They're not real weapons. So there was also a kind of blurred line between what this procession was precisely meant to mean. But the French, having only conquered Vietnam three years previously, were very jumpy about anything that appeared to be an uprising. Here he is in his woodblock, one of the woodblock prints, talking about this. And later I'll tell you a little more about the history of these woodblock prints. Um, we'll actually come back to that later. Um, so he goes to the Lycée of Algiers, and in Algeria, he's there for nine years at the school. He doesn't speak any French when he goes. He learns all his French there. Um, he doesn't, goes by himself as a 12-year-old boy, so it's a very interesting uh, situation that the French thrust him into. But he makes one friend. This is the friend that he makes, Han Yi. Now, Han Yi had been the emperor of Vietnam until he launched an uprising against the French, at which time he fled into the mountains of Vietnam um, and was later taken into French custody, and he was exiled to Algiers. So for the nine years that Ki Dong was at the school, he and Ham Yi meet each other at least once a week. They go on a picnic once a week every Sunday, sometimes more often than that. But present at these meetings, and this is important for later on, was Han Yi's painting teacher because he was starting to learn how to do landscapes and painting. So he had a French teacher by the name of Marius Reynolds, who was his um, who was his uh, uh, teacher there. So after spending nine years in Algiers, um, this is Han Yi in his later life. He married a French woman. He's got a very interesting story of exile as well, but we can't go into all of that today. Um, so Ki Dong returns to Vietnam. The French are unsure. Some people say he shouldn't go back at all. They say, let's send him to France. Let's never let him return. Um, but he is, he does get to return. Uh, this time he's 20. And um, he's offered a job as an interpreter in the office of the governor of Cochin, China, which is significant because it's in the south of Vietnam, away from where he'd grown up, away from people from where people knew him. However, he turns down this position. Um, he says that he is not haughty or ungrateful, but he feels his talents could be employed better somewhere else. So where is that somewhere else? Returning from Algeria to Vietnam, he'd actually met a French doctor and he, he struck up an unlikely friendship with him. The two of them decided to apply together for concessionary land in North Vietnam in Tonkin. By a concession, I mean a land holding given by the French colonial government to people who applied for us and said, we will develop this land in some way that the French felt would be of benefit to French colonization. Um, it might seem incongruous that a medical doctor, in this case, his friend, Dr. Gillard, would do this, but lots of people did this. They would get agricultural um, areas in North Vietnam and attempt to make a profit on them by planting some kind of cash crop. In the case of Kidong and uh, Dr. Gillard, it was probably coffee, actually, 
that they said to the French that they were going to grow. Um, so the area that they were given, and there's a question here, a question you might well ask, why on earth did the French give land to someone who they think of as somewhat, you know, potentially a, a, a potentially incendiary figure? In some ways it doesn't make any sense, right? Like why would you give someone some land which they can gather people onto when you don't trust them completely? And I think the answer to that is simply that for the French to get people to move anywhere and be laborers anywhere was so difficult. That if someone said, I can move people to North Vietnam and I can get them to grow a crop there, that then the, uh, the French went along with it. And as you'll see, they didn't go along with it for very long. So this is the concessionary area up here. It's an old colonial map that I found, concession of Dr. Gillard right here. You can see nothing is filled in in it, right? It's just area. It's land that needs to be cleared of wood, of forests in order to grow coffee on it. Um, and here is a military territory right here. In fact, this area right beside the concessionary area that they got was the area in which this man was, Thay Tham, who became quite a well-known historical figure in Vietnamese history. Um, because he uh, was the last holdout to the French. He didn't sign actually an agreement with the French until 1913. So despite the French saying that they control this whole area, uh, Kidal and Dr. Gillard's area is right next to an area which is not really under French control. It's under token French control, but really being run by this man himself and his extended family. Um, so when Kidong returned from Algeria to Vietnam, there were a lot of difficulties in adjusting to a life uh, back in Vietnam after having been a somewhat cosmopolitan exile in Algiers. And he very quickly chafed against colonial restrictions to his mobility. Um, in March 1897, he wrote to the resident superior of Tonkin, I was nourished and instructed by France for 10 years during this time, when I felt the need to travel from one village to another in France, I never had to ask for permission. When he's talking about France, he means Algeria, right? Um, if the rules of Tonkin are not the same as France, then please excuse my ignorance. Realize I left my native soil when I was a child. I make all my excuses on this subject because Annam is not France. Alas, I miss that France, a country of liberty, right? So kind of a pointed, statement to the French saying, I miss being in Algeria because you know, a lot, I had a lot more freedom there than I do back in Vietnam. And in fact, the French colonial uh, government complains to him about the fact so many people follow him around and want him to still tell fortunes and to still um, write poetry and circulate that poetry. But he responds, can I help curious people? If people, how am, I, how am I meant to prevent hundreds or thousands of men from following me? What must be done about curious people? When really, of course, it's unclear exactly what he was doing with those curious people. Um, so now that they have their land uh, right here, as you can see, they start to get people together to um, move to that land and start to grow the cash crop. And I just want to show you where it is exactly that they got right up here in the north of Vietnam, right around this area, just kind of south of Yen Bai, is where the concession area was. 
And as I mentioned before, Qigong was actually born here near Tai Vin. So he starts to essentially encourage people to move from Tai Vin to Yen uh, Te, which is south of Yen Bai up there, and move to his confessionary land that he's been given. Um, the figures of how many people moved, it's unclear, but maybe seven to 8,000 people moved, which is quite a lot of people. Um, stories circulated that in selecting people that he would allow to move to this area, he uh, read the character of their face, right? So again, this kind of fortune telling based on the face he read that he felt that the character of each person was reflected in their head, shape, and contours, and it could be read by him. And once he'd examined, you know, then he would decide whether they were allowed to travel to this area or not. Um, for the French, they start to become worried that so many people are moving to this area. As thousands of people moved to the concessionary area, provincial French authorities started to query the social class of the residents of this new confession. Spies were embedded amongst the people that moved, and they reported that as well as coolies, there were scholars, intellectuals, and soldiers. However, the French had no legal reason to stop them from moving um, because they all carried identity cards, they'd all received correct travel permission in their home villages. Um, the, one of the French reports said, these people are so well-dressed, it looks like their hands have never touched soil, right? So they're very suspicious about who he's managing to get to move to this area. And one of the most interesting accounts, I should say, of um, this period comes from the local French commander who was posted all over the French colonial world and wherever he went, he wrote about it. In fact, he was often criticized for kind of showing off about his experiences in various places. But he wrote um, a book that was published and quite popular in France in 1905 about his experiences. And he has a chapter on Kidal in this. And it's very interesting how he describes him in it. He says that the first day he met him, Kidal arrived at his office at the head of 800 men. Um, maybe an exaggeration, but he said he was dressed in a Vietnamese outfit with a French student's beret on his head. And he discussed in great depth, with very detailed maps, his plans for developing the area. Um, he said Kidong spoke perfect Parisian French without flaw in grammar or accent, which he found very disconcerting. Uh, something else that Kidong did on his plantation or concessionary area was everyone who wore the tradition, traditional conical hat of the Vietnamese peasant had the French flag painted on it, the tricolor, um, which irritated the French colonial authorities because they felt, mm, is this really sincere or not? Um, another thing that they were interested in that spies wrote about was the fact that there was exercises going on in the plantations. Um, come back, please. Oh, sorry, I went the wrong way there. Um, one of, the, one of the reports from the spies said they're to, he's definitely training soldiers because this is what he's built on his plantation, right? The irony of this, you know, so it's basically a gymnastic bar, you know. Um, this was used as evidence that, uh, that Kidong was getting people to exercise and potentially building up soldiers amongst these people who had moved 
One of the ironies is that when he was in Algiers, he won a gymnastics medal for the secondary school of Algeria. So whether it was just he wanted his own personal gymnastic bar or whether he really was training a secret army, we don't know. Um, however, one thing is certainly true that from a local perspective, Kidong's education and classical poetry, geomancy or feng shui gave him access to a tradition powerful in its ability to intersect with various elements of Vietnamese folk religion. Um, and poetry and proclamations written in Chinese and attributed to him circulated throughout the concession and beyond. So we're starting to see things coming together in this area where rumors are circulating about what he's doing on this land that he now has. Um, one of the rumors that we see, which is did not was not really present when he was a child, are very strong connections to millenarian Buddhism. Um, and the idea that potentially um, there is going to be uh, a new Buddhist era emerging. Um, so it's unclear if his clearing of the land was just so coffee could be planted, or for many people in the area, they believed it heralded the arrival of Maitreya, Buddha of the future world. Uh, which is an idea very strongly linked to Vietnamese folk religion, that when there is a time that is very, with lots of unease in a country, lots of problems, especially foreign invasion from the French, um, the teachings of the current Buddha will no longer exert authority and the Maitreya will descend to create a new order. There are three elements for this to happen. Um, historians would say a prospicious time, right? Lots of unease. Um, with the French invasion, favorable terrain, the concessionary area, and receptive minds. And it's very clear that he had receptive minds around him. So that's another of the rumors that circulated about him. Um, but there were other ones. There wasn't just the idea that, that uh, he was going to signal the arrival of the Maitreya. There was also a speculation that he was the living manifestation of a mountain spirit that was close to where the concessionary area was. Um, there was other rumors that he was dealing, he was going to suspend all of the taxes, which for the, for the Vietnamese peasants in the area were a terrible burden. So there was lots of rumors, right? Not just about him connected to Buddhism, connected to folk religion, connected to mountain spirits. Um, and then of course, all of the skills that he still had since he was a child, you know, feng shui, reading faces, telling fortunes, writing poetry. So out of all of this, the question remains, what was he doing in the concessionary area? Was he constructing a plantation, developing French territorial space for them just as they wanted? Or was he organizing an uprising against the French? Um, it's very, in a way, it's very difficult to say because um, there are, he, he always, denied his whole life that he had been involved in assembling an anti-French force on that concessionary land. On the other hand, there were seven to 8,000 people living on it and not all of them were there to grow coffee. So it's actually, in the end, I think it's difficult to say and it only lasted for less than a month before he was arrested again. Um, I mentioned the local French commander who described him as being very cosmopolitan, very French, um, he also described him in a way which is almost homoerotic, actually. It's interesting when you read the, this description of him. 
um, Commander Perez wrote, he was a charming Anamite, the miraculous child, a certain type of this race which is delicate and distinct. Almost like an adolescent at the age of 20, his body was supple like a young stalk of bamboo, and he had magnificent and luscious hair. Um, and later on, he also described him as being pretty like a girl whose black hair contrasted with the pale of his skin. You know? And so that these encounters that Perez writes about in this book that later become the best-selling French um, account of Indochina are interesting to see. Uh, one thing he says, which has some, which I think is also interesting, is that he says that Kudon really liked to drink. He came back from Algeria, very fond of French wine and French champagne. And so Commander Perez would meet him and try and get him drunk and then say, OK, what are you really doing on this concessionary land? Um, he said uh, that one time he managed to intoxicate him for the deadening of the mind and the loosening of the tongue and that he was able to explore uh, one of the buildings on Kidong's concession, and he came upon a throne room with imperial regalia, silver weapons, and a list of future officials in the government of Kidong. None of this was ever found except in Perez's imagination, but you can see that when he wrote a colonial account like that, and it circulated as widely as it did in France, um, it would also, of course, uh, make the case against Kidong and keeping him in exile, which we'll talk about later even stronger. Um, so as I said, he was only on the concessionary land for less than a month and he's arrested and taken from Haiphong in the north of Vietnam by boat to Saigon and placed in prison. So he's been at liberty now back in Vietnam for 11 months. He's had his concessionary land with Dr. Gillard for only um, one month and now he's under French arrest. Um, he denied all the charges that were put against him. One of the charges was plotting with Detam, who I showed you earlier, right, who had this area that was not really under French control. So the French authorities said that Kidong and Detam together maybe were planning something because their land uh, bordered each other. Um, so after he is taken into French custody, there's all sorts of other rumors that circulate. Um, about what has happened to him. And some of them appear in these woodblock prints um, which circulated as he's in prison in Saigon. So let me show them to you, um, which tell his life story. Um, this is him as a child, the Namding incident. This is his prodigious ability. You can see this man is a Vietnamese Mandarin and Kidong is telling him um, all his, he's basically reciting poetry that the Mandarin cannot match in its brilliant eloquence. Um, this is a French soldier after he's been taken, after he's been arrested off his concessionary land. This soldier is trying to shoot him, French soldier with a rifle. Unfortunately, well, fortunately for Kidong, he can of course turn night into day, so the French soldier cannot kill him because everything becomes pitch black at that time. This is one of the most interesting ideas of what happens to him after he is taken into custody. The French bury him alive um, to kill him. This is one of the rumors that circulated. However, after three days, and the woodblock prints you know, describes this happening, after three days, he's dug up again and he's alive. Right? So you can see a lot of interesting Christian overtones in this from an area in which there have been a lot of Catholic missionaries, this idea that he would be um, buried but would still be alive.
names. And this is an interesting picture too, because you can see French people always have beards. This is meant to be a Frenchman peeking into the grave where Key Dong's like, I'm not dead, I'm alive, um, carrying a colonial cane. And this man with him, his accomplice, is a local Vietnamese official. So this woodblock print also shows uh, collaboration between the French and the local Vietnamese officials who were assisting. But this is another rumor. So all these rumors are circulating. There's also poetry is circulating. This is one of the poems that was attached to the trees at the time uh, when Kidong was in custody in Saigon. It's a proclamation, I should say. And um, I paraphrased it here, but through the present notification, all the world has warned that in three months there will be peace. This means the apocalypse, okay? This means that heaven and earth will essentially change places and the Vietnamese or Chinese um, mythology of it and that uh, there'll be a whole new era. This notice is to advise everyone the French will be punished when the moment arises. Okay, so this is warning of a whole new era um, that is about to emerge. While he is in custody, there are two, three uprisings which are linked to his followers, although I should say there's no proof actually that the followers came from the concessionary area or um, there's all sorts of other people who are kind of jumping on the Kidong bandwagon at the time who had grievances against the French, but there's three uprisings um, in Haizung, uh, Haiphong and Taibin, and I just want to mention um, the so-called soldiers of heaven, which is what people wore around their necks, actually wore placards saying a soldier of heaven in Haizun, and they also had around their necks a placard, uh, Mercury, inside a vial around their necks, which the French believed was to take, to kill themselves if they were taken into French custody, but more likely, I think, to have been a Taoist talisman of immortality, because Mercury is really linked to alchemy within, um, within Taoism. So, the other one I want to mention a bit about is Haiphong, because in Haiphong, a Frenchman was killed um, in the uprising. And what's really interesting about this is he's the only person killed in the three uprisings, apart from the Vietnam, the only French person killed. And if you read the official French correspondence about him, he was a wonderful member of Haiphong society. If you read the confidential archives on him, the resident superior Tonkin said, he is a scoundrel in every single way and is against everything just. At the time of his murder, he was under investigation for the sadistic murder of a young Vietnamese woman who worked for him, who he had thrown out of a window and she subsequently died. So I, think, I don't think it's too much of a stretch of the imagination to think that her relatives took this as an opportunity or people associated with with her took this as an opportunity to kill him during the uprising. Uh, but in retaliation for 11 Vietnamese people were beheaded and their heads were placed outside his house on the railings as a warning to other people. So his father was written in Paris and said, don't worry, we've, we've avenged the death of your son. There are 11 heads outside his door now. Um, so, the fact that these uprisings occurred, even though Kidong is in custody in the south of Vietnam at this time, seals his fate. He's going to be exiled. Um, he did not receive a public trial because that would be too risky to bring him out. Instead, there was a closed tribunal in Hanoi and he was given 
a sentence of perpetual exile. For many members of the colonial press, they did not feel this was a strong enough sentence. And one of the main newspapers in Tonkin said that uh, the day after these uprisings, engineered by young Kidong from prison, we hope to see the governor general acting with energy. That is to give the order for the child of miracles to be brought to Hanoi and beheaded in the public place. In order to show the Anamites, remember the term for Vietnamese, the falseness of his supernatural powers and his Im immortality. In place of this, they prefer an act of clemency, right? So they're furious he's been given exile instead of being beheaded. Um, however, arguably, Kidong was too powerful to behead. And one of the rumors actually attached to him is about beheading, because people said he couldn't behead him because he'd grow another head. And I've seen many uh, references to this in different sort of rumors that were written down at the time. So they decide that they're going to have to marginalize him. They're going to contain him by sending him as far away as possible. And at the time, that is going to be to French Guiana. So his exile decree is written here. Um, you can see that the Anamite Nguyen Van Tang, his real also called Kidal, will be deported to French Guiana, and he will be uh, interned there until he until another ordinance. However, it's changed en route to Europe. His exile location is changed to Tahiti. Um, and why that happens, I don't know. I mean, from French Guiana, which at the time had a terrible death rate due to yellow fever, it was a very difficult penal colony. To, be, to have his exile decree changed from there to Tahiti was like an amazing stroke of luck, right? But it may well have been because the French didn't want him to die in French Guiana, and there was a high death rate then. And they thought if rumors returned to Vietnam that he was dead, it could cause them more problems. Um, so he travels to France, uh, and this is how he travels. He travels in the kind of boat that's used to transport convicts, which is cages built into the ships. They were specially built ships in which prisoners were transported. And so he wrote to the French authorities and said, I've been transported in a cage with, uh, con with murderers, with thieves, with all these other people. And they don't even have a strong case against me that I did anything wrong. Um, he uh, was placed in Toulon before he was moved on in Toulon is uh, where the original uh, sort of penal sites were. Originally, the French used convicts as oarsmen on boats. Then they kept them in these dockside prisons, which later on become the penal colony, or uh, the, the prisoners are taken from them and placed eventually in penal colonies. So that's where he is. He's in Toulon. That's the only time he's actually ever in France, is during this time when he's in, uh, he's in prison there. Um, he does dispute the legality of his exile, which is interesting. That shows he was quite well read about local laws to do with exile and how you could be exiled because he wasn't exiled by a full trial. He was exiled by essentially an administrative decree. Um, and so he says, on what grounds are you exiling me to French Guiana, which is actually a site for people who have gone through um, a tribunal or some form of, of trial. Uh, so when his exile uh, location is changed, he ends up being shipped from Toulon to New Caledonia, which you can see on the map here. 
is right here. This is the insert um, up here. Along with kind of our ageless followers that Mayor Gibbon, perpetual exile as well, to the nickel mines of New Caledonia, where they have to work. At the time, New Caledonia was one of two main French penal colonies, the other being, of course, French Guiana. And um, New Caledonia was considered to be the healthier of these two sites of exile. So uh, Kidong is in New Caledonia for about a year. Um, he's actually right here in Numia. His followers are down here on the uh, Ile de Pin, which was used by the French as a place for political, generally for political exile. And um, but after, as I said, after 11 months, he's moved on. I think one thing that is interesting about his time in New Caledonia is that we have one of his letters, which was written there, um, which was never sent but the translation is still in the archive along with the letter. And this is the original of the letter, and this is the translation that was done by the local uh, Vietnamese interpreter for the Indigenous Affairs Translation Bureau. Um, the letter, original letter was written in a mixture of classical Chinese um, and a uh, character-based system also used in Vietnam called Nol. Very difficult, uh, very difficult use of Chinese characters. So if we look at what the original actually says, we don't have to go through the whole letter, but if we just look at the bold part, currently for me to escape to the northern country China from this place is very easy. This is Joseph Wu's translation for the French authorities. When I was put into prison, I was not angry right? Completely different. So how do we explain this? Did Joseph Wu want to help him? I don't think so. I think he couldn't understand what the letter was saying because it was such, um, such a, a convoluted use of uh, Chinese and Vietnamese. Remember, we're dealing with a very gifted linguist, right? Um, and so he was able to write a letter like this, which was not translatable by the French, uh, by the uh, and uh, interpreter used by the French authorities. And also, if we look at his name, Joseph, he may have been Catholic, which again means that he may not have been trained in classical Chinese himself. So um, this letter was not sent, not because the French really doubted the translation, but the translation was about this size. And the original letter was, they thought, hmm, there's something wrong with the proportion of uh, French to Chinese here. So it was never ultimately uh, conveyed back to Vietnam, which is why it's still in the archive now. Um, so from New Caledonia, uh, he was sent on to Tahiti, which was his next uh, point of exile. Um, and he was meant to stay in Tahiti. Tahiti was meant to be his final destination. He had this, this pamphlet was published about him when he ended up in Papete. It was meant to circulate so that people could pick him out from a crowd. Uh, part of the problem with picking him out was that in the description of it, of him, he says he looks quite Chinese. And at the time, 90% uh, of the shops in Papete and Tahiti were owned by Chinese merchants. And so as a result, it was much easier for him to blend into the local community than, um, than the French had hoped. Uh, and so after he'd only been in Papete, 
for less than a year, uh, the governor uh, general of Oceania, which was what Papetti was part of at the time, the island of Tahiti was, he said, you've got to move him on. He is an unceasing cause of embarrassment to me because he is at liberty, he's sending letters back to the Chinese uh, traders and the court. So then they looked at the map again and they thought, where can we send him to? And they decided to send him to somewhere even more remote than Tahiti was, which are the Marquesas, which are right here. You can see Tahiti here, and here's the Marquesas, these extremely remote islands. Um, so when they sent him there, they decided that he should do something useful, which was to be a traveling nurse to the population. They decided this based on the fact, of course, he had no medical training or anything whatsoever. Um, so the Marquesas are a very interesting, uh, uh, very interesting series of islands, in fact, quite famous in terms of travel accounts. Herman Melville went there. The American writer was uh, shipwrecked in one of the Marquesas. Captain Cook went there. They were actually within um, uh, travel, many travel accounts, fam very famous islands for cannibalism, tattooing, and the warfare, um, which had sort of decimated their populations, along with illnesses brought in from passing ships. So by the time Kidong was there, the population had, through many estimations, fallen from an original total of 100,000 people down to maybe only 4,000 people. One of the worst population decimations of sort of contact uh, that I think we've seen in the world. Um, it's very, very spectacular scenery in the Marquesas. So when you think of French Polynesia, you think of Tahiti, it's not like that at all. It's dramatic mountains, volcanic peaks, very sharp ridges. Um, there are no lagoons or coral reefs, just sheer drops into the sea. Um, and so the uh, three years before Kidal arrived uh, there, the Scottish writer, Robert Louis Stevenson spent a month in the Marquesas, and he said, it is by far the most ominous and gloomy spot on the earth. He also said there was a dreadful uniformity of days because there was really nothing to do there whatsoever. And um, it's certainly true, this is an old map, I say island ironies because so many people had visited it, and yet it was such, in many ways, such a gloomy place with a terrible wet climate where People said it would rain for about a year and never stop. Um, so from the Marquesas, Kidong petitioned to return to Vietnam. He wrote quite a lot of petitions in his time. And he said, please let me leave these islands, these underpopulated islands in which I miserably vegetate, uh, because there was really not very much to do. Um, not very much to eat either, except for sweetbreads and breadfruit. And, um, he did learn how to speak Marikasan, which is a distinct language from Tahitian, because he was very uh, gifted at languages, as you know. Um, while there, he uh, met a woman. He, they did not get married. He'd actually been married when he was on his concession in Vietnam, but they had two children together. Um, a son, who he called Pierre Napoleon, wonderful French name, and a daughter he called Bernadette, which I think is kind of nice, because St. Bernadette was saw visions, right? She was the person that the shrine of Lourdes was uh, based 
or at the place where she saw vision. So we're talking about sort of a continuing sort of um, uh, mystical element to him. Um, so this is just what is tattooing, as I said. These are some old colonial pictures of what the Marikins look like. The woman that he married uh, was also a political exile. She was a follower of this man, and she'd been exiled from another island in French Polynesia. So the woman he had these children with had also experienced uh, exile and the alienation of being taken from her natal uh, island and transported to the Marquesas. So that may have been an interesting link between them. Um, I don't have time, I want to get on to just kind of completing the, his life story a little bit with um, petitions. Now he, he didn't just write petitions for himself, his friends wrote petitions. And this is an unusual petition because it's actually in the British archives at Kew. It's written by one of his friends in 1908 as King Edward to ask him if he could intervene and find his friend, Kidong, who was in a place called, he wrote this in English and popped it in the envelope, or in French, really, but in, he was in a village called Ocean in France, right? Which, um, so he wasn't forgotten completely. His mother also wrote and asked if they could just let him know where he was in 1907, but they did not let her know where he was. Um, so, as I mentioned before, he and Gauguin were friends from 1901 to 1903 when Gauguin died, and I'm going to return to that in a minute. But uh, Kidong himself moved back to the island of Tahiti in 1911, and he died there in 1929. Um, he worked at the pharmacy of the hospital in Papete, which is kind of a nice, you know, uh, mixing potions, healing potions. Uh, so it's sort of a nice link in some ways to what he did when he was young in terms of supplying health for people. Um, and uh, in terms of his legacy, and I know I'm running out of time, so let me just say a couple of things about this. Um, he, these are a couple of rare sort of uh, photographs. This was given to me by his family. This is him with his son here in Napoleon, and this is him with an unknown colonial uh, official. One thing that's very interesting about him and his afterlife is that because he was very good friends with Gauguin for those two years of Gauguin's life, when biographers came to write biographies of Gauguin, they talked to Kidong. And in the process of this conversations, Kidong could give a version of his life, which was really untrue, but in many ways was the version of his life that he wanted people to believe. Um, so what did he tell them? Well, he said he told the biographers that he was from a well-off family who'd sent him on a scholarship to Algeria, um, that on his return to Vietnam, he decided to fight against the injustices of the colonial government. That he was a very modern revolutionary. He had printing presses, he wrote pamphlets, they were distributed, um, and that is how he became exiled to the other side of the world. Um, so from the beginning, when he was interviewed immediately after Gauguin's death, 1903, he was already interviewed until his death. He always told these stories and even told them to his own children as well, that he was from a very different sort of background. Um, and this is reflected today in the kinds of ways that he's mentioned in biographies of Gauguin. So um, one of the many biographies of Gauguin by David Swetman, um, 
repeats this kind of misinformation about hedonists, that hedonists hold people himself. So this sort of sums up what their biographies usually say. As a prince, Nguyen Van Kham had received a first-rate education in his native Thai Vinh province before obtaining a grant to continue his studies in Algiers, where he took a double degree in literature and science. I think he added in the double degree just because it sounded good. Um, seasickness prevented a planned career in the French Navy. I don't know where he got that from. Um, and at 21, he returned to Annam, where he joined the colonial administration, a move which was radically to alter his view of life. Faced with the inherent justice of the system and reborn as Hidong, he quickly assumed the role of agitator and opponent of the foreign regime. So here you can see that he's given himself a very sort of adult sense of agency, right? He's made decisions about becoming anti-French. He's um, reborn as Hidong. It's not the name given to him. It's the way in which he's now become a proper revolutionary. Um, so this is the kind of this is the kind of information that is repeated not just through biographies but also in novels about Gauguin, like uh, Mario Vargas Llosa's book *The Way to Paradise*. Again, that's the way that Hidong is written about in it. As he says about him, he was civil servant by day, you know, activist by night. So he's got this kind of. He even told his family this, as I said. And one of the things he told them in an account that his uh, son wrote down was that when he was in France, which you know, Kidon was never in France, except when he was in prison, he saw the words liberty, equality, fraternity on monuments, and there was none of that for Indochina. So he had to return uh, to Indochina and implement it. Um, so I think, you know, as a biographer, you think about these things. Why did he make the decisions that he did in telling the things about his life that he did? Um, after all, many of us would like to say I was a child protege and I was brilliant and people came from all over North Vietnam to see me. But he never told people that story about himself at all. He told himself very much as sort of an intellectual revolutionary who as an adult made these decisions. Um, one other way, one other interesting link that he has to, um, to Gauguin is in the last self-portrait, which Gauguin did. Um, which is here. Um, this was given as a gift to Kidong by Gauguin before Gauguin died in 1903. Um, and this painting um, was not uh, acknowledged as a Gauguin for 25 years thereafter because it's unsigned by Gauguin. It's also a very different kind of style, as you can see from his earlier work. Um, one of the things that's interesting about this is that when uh, Kidong was first interviewed about this portrait in 1910, he referred to it as his own self-portrait. And um, now most art historians would say that if um, Gauguin may have finished it, but undoubtedly Kidong began it and probably sketched a lot of it himself. Um, and one thing I think is very interesting about this is that when the, there was a huge exhibition of Gauguin's paintings, both at the Tate Modern in London and also at the National Gallery in Washington, DC, this was the last painting of the exhibition. Many of them talked about how, many of the critics talked about how it reminded them of a funeral portrait, right? And for me, of course, reading that, thinking of Kidong's awareness of ancestral portraits, it's a very interesting link to it. 
And uh, one of the reasons that it was validated, so to speak, as a Gauguin in 1928, was the idea that there was no one in the Marquesas who even knew grossly how to handle a painting brush. But of course, that's untrue. Pidon was present for uh, painting lessons for nine years. Remember all those long Sundays in Algiers with Hamie and his painting instructor? So I think it's, a, it's another really interesting link there. Um, but just to conclude and think about his afterlife in Vietnam, here are his descendants. He's remembered, of course, by his descendants in uh, Tahiti, who are now debating whether to send his body back to Vietnam. There's a debate amongst them whether he would like his body to be returned. Uh, many of them, his grandsons, grandsons believe that this should happen. Uh, how he's remembered in Vietnam is partly through those links to Diet Tam, whose concessionary area was next to him. This is Diet Tam. You can see he's really put here in a lineage of fighting, right, against uh, foreign invaders. He's a famous figure in Vietnam, and so Pidong is seen as his friend and potential associate. Um, Han Yi, the emperor, is also remembered in Vietnam as a very patriotic um, emperor. That's also Diet Tam as well at a big center that they're building in Yente, very close to where Kidong's concessionary area was. And he's remembered personally by the descendants of his sister, uh, his two older sisters. You can see he's within their quite humble houses. Ironically enough, his descendants in Tahiti are much better off than his, uh, the descendants of his older sisters are in Vietnam. They're really quite poor, but his um, family in Tahiti is, is doing well. Um, but one way I think that's very nice that he is recalled, um, he lives on in a very local and intimate way, um, is that since the 1920s he's been installed as the um, guardian spirit of the village where he grew up. Um, and this is the building in, uh, in uh, not Din, his, uh, his home village. And so Din is, is basically a communal hall is thought of as the focal point for a village where people will come and offer um, offerings, give, ask for blessings, give prayers, and um, it's usually someone who was born in the area who's done something miraculous. So in this case, it's uh, the Kidong who has done it. Um, he, this is the photo on the altar, and it's looking a little bit like it needs a dust. Um, this is the photo there, and maybe you can't see too clearly, but this is actually Kidong's school photo from Algiers, um, which he sent back, uh, and he wrote on the back of it, uh, in careful calligraphy, when he, he sent it back to Vietnam when he was at school during those years in Algiers, he wrote, respect above all is what one must possess, with respect and affection, Kidong. And so, although a repatriation request from Toulon, Marseille, New Caledonia, Viva O, and Piquete all went unanswered, in one compelling way, Kidong did make it home to his natal village and the landscape that he cherished so much in the poems of his childhood. Thank you very much.